the whole point of Bitcoin was that, you know, to stop the money printing, right? Uh, that was, you know, a, a core aspect of Bitcoin. And here we are, we're sitting here and all of these projects are printing tokens left and right. And that's it's not something that we never felt comfortable with doing. I think one of the important questions we have to ask ourselves as Bitcoiners is does our ethos around self-custody, does it scale from a social perspective, but also does it scale from a technical perspective? We're trying to build this. There's lots of other folks trying to build this and, and these tools need to exist. Otherwise, people are just going to keep getting revved on centralized exchanges. Great. Now we focus on PLC contracts that are all on chain. Um, but it is possible to actually move DLCs onto Lightning. I feel like the biggest risk to Bitcoin is governments acting properly. <laughs> um, like if, if your government is acting properly, then then uh, I mean, there's no need for Bitcoin. But the chance, uh, what is the chances that that uh, governments do everything right for the next hundred years and, they, and none, of, none of the politicians mess up? Matt Black is the co-founder and CTO of Atomic Finance, a Bitcoin company that uses DLCs to make it possible for people to earn a self-custodial yield on their Bitcoin. In our conversation, we got into Matt's path to becoming a Bitcoin builder. We talked about the risks and the rewards of using something like Atomic Finance. We got into the importance of self-custodial financial tools. And then we explored the potential value of Atomic Finance integrating Lightning or other layer two scaling solutions. If you enjoyed this episode and if you learned something new, the best way that you can show your support for the show is by sending in sats over the Lightning Network. You can use any podcasting 2.0 app to do that. There are dozens of them out there, but my favorite one to use is Fountain. Before we get into today's show, just a quick message from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning node infrastructure. Today's show is also sponsored by Stackwork. Stackwork is a lightning-powered transcription tool that takes the best of AIs and humans to create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. We'll have more from Voltage and Stackwork later in the show. Matt, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. We have got a lot to cover. We're going to go through building on Bitcoin. We're going to talk about Atomic and the product you're working on. We're going to talk about why self-custody is important. But before we get into that, why don't you give listeners a little background? Tell them a little bit about your story, how you got into Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Kevin. Um, so I actually originally got into Bitcoin back in 2014. It was actually my dad that introduced me to Bitcoin, funny enough. Um, he's a bit of a gold bug. And so uh, Bitcoin obviously was really interesting to him because he's looking for investments that are you know outside of government purview. And so Bitcoin fits into that category very nicely. So uh, you know, back in the day, I was in high school at the time. I was just managing his assets back in 2014. And honestly, I forgot about it for a couple of years. Um, fast forward to 2017, uh, myself and my you know, current co-founder, we were actually roommates at the time at University of Waterloo. Um, and of course, uh, you know, if, if we were all remember at that time, you know, Waterloo was the founding place of, of Ethereum. And so we actually went down the Ethereum rabbit hole for a long time before eventually coming back and realizing that, you know, Bitcoin is really the most important asset and, uh, you know, eventually becoming Bitcoin maximalist. So, yeah. Very cool. I'd love to dive into that process of starting down the Ethereum rabbit hole and then deciding Bitcoin was actually where you should be building. Um, tell me about what that was like and, and what were some of the catalysts that kind of convinced you to make the switch? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, in general, uh, one of the things that was really interesting to us originally about Ethereum that we got sold on while we were, you know, in Waterloo and around the community was this concept that, hey, um, Bitcoin is a, is a great asset, right? It's a, it's a great investment vehicle, but at the end of the day, you can't really do much with it. It's a pet rock. Look at Ethereum. You can build all of these smart contracts. So the idea for us of being able to get access to financial tools that were non-custodial, that could be accessed by anyone in the world, was very compelling. And so we went down the rabbit hole of, hey, well, what does it look like to actually build those financial tools and, and, and actually construct them? And it was actually in the process of working with, um, I actually, at, back in the day, I worked with a team called Liquality, and they were building atomic swaps between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And a couple of the individuals on the team were actually Bitcoin maximalists. 
And so honestly, like I, I have them a lot, you know, a lot to, to thank them for because they really made me realize the value of Bitcoin and why it's so important um, to have a supply cap limit, for example, or for um, the fact that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't change that easily or the fact that Satoshi isn't around anymore or all of these aspects of Bitcoin, the security focus. We don't in, we don't introduce changes before, um, you know, rigorous testing. And we also don't hard fork, you know, like all of these aspects that are so important to us in Bitcoin, I learned from working with those folks. And it was on, on that on top of also, you know, being in the process of building a DeFi project in Ethereum and realizing that, hey, it's DeFi summer of 2018. Everyone and their dog is going and creating a governance token. Why are they doing that, right? The whole point of Bitcoin was that, you know, to stop the money printing, right? Uh, that was, you know, a, a core aspect of Bitcoin. And here we are, we're sitting here and all of these projects are printing tokens left and right. And that's it's not something that we never felt comfortable with doing. And so that on top of realizing, you know, kind of some of the security considerations of Ethereum with, you know, how, you know, smart contracts have a very large surface area of attack combined with, um, you know, the Jenga tower that I think everybody knows about in Ethereum. All those things eventually pushed us towards Bitcoin. And at the same time, there was these great uh, contracts, financial primitives that were being built on Bitcoin that would allow for, you know, more expressive financial contracts to be built on Bitcoin. Um, you know, those are called uh, DLCs, which I'm sure we'll get into. And so all of that really pushed us in the other direction. Interesting. And, you know, did you have any kind of colleagues and, and friendly projects in the space in, in the Ethereum ecosystem that you've kept track of over the last few years? I'd love to hear about, you know, having gone through this transition in now the last four or five years, you, you kind of being able to watch what are all those Ethereum projects building and what are the Bitcoin projects building and kind of you now had, I think, probably a few years to reflect on this and think about, you know, whether or not there are big differences in the in the pace of innovation, in the uh, adoption of these products. What have you learned from that experience? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think in general, um, one of the things I've noticed, and obviously in Ethereum, a lot of the projects, one of the things you'll notice is most of them have a token, right? So a lot of these guys that were building really innovative products back in 2018, 2019, now they've gone and they have a token associated with it too. And, and so, you know, obviously, um, you know, there's kind of a, um, a weird aspect to that for sure. But I think the other thing is, hey, there, there, is, there is some innovation in Ethereum that is interesting, right? I think something like ZK rollups, right? That's something that's, um, that really you know, inspires some of the work that John Light has done that is trying to bring some of that technology over to Bitcoin. Um, but I, I think one thing to keep in mind is it's easy to make a lot of innovation in the wrong areas, right? Ethereum has made a lot of, you know, they, they finally activated proof of stake but there's, you know, we all know that that's made uh, the chain more centralized. Um, there's been, uh, you know, obviously, you know, um, DeFi has continued to grow, but a lot of those are various shit coins that have been created. So it's easy to make a lot of innovation in the wrong areas, I, I would say. And there's some things that I think are interesting, like ZK rollups and some of the scaling um, that maybe like we might be able to use in Bitcoin. Right. Now, you know, the the idea you just mentioned about being able to make innovations in the wrong area, I think is something that Bitcoiners have been very aware of for many years, right? And and this has actually, I think, led to over the last few years, we've seen a cohort of Bitcoin users who say, we don't want changes. We're and almost I think out of fear of making an innovation in the wrong area, just like you described. Um and so you guys came into this ecosystem and you're deciding you're going to build things on Bitcoin at a time when I think the status quo was, this is digital gold, you know, lightning hadn't quite taken off yet. It was very much like we're, we're building something that is going to be stable and not change. What was it like to come into that ecosystem and say, you know what, we're actually going to build something on top of this. We're going to use this, these tools and build new things and innovate. Yeah, I think it was really fascinating because at the time that we made the switch, all the Ethereum, you know, all the Ethereum people were like, well, why don't you just build on Ethereum? And the Bitcoin people were like, we already have financial tools, but most of them are centralized. We don't really need this. And so, um, but there was, a, I think there was a small group of Bitcoiners that had this viewpoint that, um, 
and, and I think what you're referring to, Kevin, probably is, is now, like with so many changes that have come into Bitcoin, there's kind of ossification maximums. Nothing should ever change to Bitcoin ever because that's going to mess something up. Um, but uh, there was a small group of Bitcoiners at the time that were really interested in, hey, well, there's actually some financial primitives that we can build directly on Bitcoin. And we don't actually have to make any changes to Bitcoin itself. Uh, Bitcoin can stay as it is and we can build these financial primitives um, and and we can go ahead and, and we can build lots of different you know financial tools with that. So I think that's that's one aspect of it, which is that, hey, um, you know, these things are possible today. You don't need to make any changes to Bitcoin to en enable these type of features. But I think the other side is really around, um, you know, ossification maximalism. Bitcoin should never change. And what I would say to that is, well, if Bitcoin never changes, well, there's not enough space on chain for every person to have a UTXO. So, you know, how the heck do you think we're going to have um, enough space for, you know, everyone to be non-custodial? And so, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, um, I feel like there's, there's extremes that have been created through uh, a few different changes. And there's a lot of, uh, through the block size wars, there's a lot of people that are, you know, either angry or um, are, um, are, 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 uh, negatively affected you know by what happened in the block size wars and so for us it was really just a viewpoint of hey um we want to build non-custodial tools for bitcoin and we feel like this is really one of the most important things that need to be built because if the only thing that you have out there is custodial financial tools for bitcoin that's what people are going to use and they're going to go end up use the ftx's the celsius's the block fives of the world and they're going to go and get rugged so how can we make unruggable finance for bitcoin um, was really mm. our motto. That's really interesting. I, I'd love to dive into the ossification idea first, just to, to mm. clarify that. How do you how do you think about approaching this issue? Because there there are two schools of thought, and they seem to be kind of diverging and often pushing against each other. One saying Bitcoin should never change, and one saying here's all these new cool changes we could introduce. Uh, how do you navigate that? I've heard people take the approach of like. The base layer should be more ossified and the layers above should be more uh, flexible and, and allow for more innovation. Is that the right lens to look at this problem through? What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think I think before you talk about the, the technology aspect of it, I feel like you need to talk about the why of Bitcoin um, and, and, and why Bitcoin is useful. So one of the great like aspects, I think, of Bitcoin is the ability to be self-custodial, right? The ability to custody your own funds and not have to trust anyone with that. And that works fairly well today. And that has worked fairly well for 14 years where people can custody their own coins. But I feel like moving forward, there's really two possible things that can occur. Um, we, you know, the, the default for Bitcoin today, if Bitcoin stays as it is and nothing changes, is that the majority of people that use Bitcoin will not be self-custodial. Right. Because I think one of the important questions we have to ask ourselves as Bitcoiners is, does our ethos around self-custody, does it scale from a social perspective, but also does it scale from a technical perspective? Because if it doesn't scale from a technical perspective, then it's definitely not going to scale from a social perspective. And so um, I feel like if you look through that lens and, and I feel like the default for Bitcoin. So if we make no changes to Bitcoin today, Bitcoin becomes digital gold. The majority of it is custody by large institutions. The potential for a rug pull by a state actor is very high, right? Um, a 6102 attack like they did with gold um, back in uh, the 1930s um, is now possible with Bitcoin. And so I think we need to look at and ask ourselves, well, what type of future do we want for Bitcoin? And this isn't a problem maybe in the next 10 years, but maybe it is in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years for Bitcoin. And so um, that's kind of the lens that I look at. And yes, we shouldn't be making massive changes to Bitcoin, right? Ethereum has learned that lesson the hard way. You know, if you move fast and break things, well, things break, right? <laughs> that's what you're going to expect. Um, and, and so I think in, I don't know, the way I think about it in Bitcoin is that um, instead of moving fast and break things, why don't we um, move slow and focus on the things that are the most important to be able to scale our ethos? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, what are some of those important things that you think can be built on Bitcoin? Maybe that other folks haven't realized yet. Um, well, I think, uh, what do you mean by that? Like, are you talking in terms of scaling or are you talking in terms of like 
financial tools or what, what domain are you thinking of there? Any of the above. <laughs> um, well, I think there's a lot of people that maybe don't know that there's more that you can do with your Bitcoin. You know, you, uh, you can do more than just, you know, uh, have it in self-custody in your hardware wallet, right? It's possible to, well, obviously a lot of, most people know you can use it for payments, but most people don't know you can actually do more advanced, you know, financial tools with it. Um, there's, it's actually possible to do things like betting, like futures contracts, uh, options contracts. It's possible to do all of that in a non-custodial manner. Um, and then I think the other aspect is, well, how can Bitcoin scale? Which I think a lot of people are talking about. And um, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of talk about, hey, can, can, you know, Lightning Network doesn't scale maybe as well as we want it to. What are the alternatives that will allow it to scale in the long term? Interesting. Um, okay, let's get into Atomic. You mentioned some of the potential use cases there. Um, let's get in, we'll get into DLCs in just a moment. But before we do that, just give people an understanding of what compelled you to build Atomic Finance and just a high level overview for folks who don't know what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the quick, um, you know, overview of what Atomic is, is um, we're, we're, what we're building is in, in essence is a mobile app that allows for folks to earn a yield on their Bitcoin in a manner where they don't actually have to give away their private keys, right? So where they can make returns on their Bitcoin and they don't need to just deposit it into a black box. Um, but before I get into that, I wanna talk just briefly about um, like the why and why this is important, because I think that's very paramount. And I think a lot of people experienced this recently, which is last year, we saw a lot of, a lot of different you know, financial tools out there for Bitcoin or yield gaining opportunities out there for Bitcoin, the BlockFi's, the Celsius of the world, where they were guaranteeing you, you know, 8% yield on your, on your Bitcoin, but you had to deposit it into a black box. And so we were asking ourselves the question, why is it that the, you know, after self-custody and cold storage or lightning, why is the next thing, if you want to do anything finance related with your Bitcoin, um, you know, and maybe it's just for hedging, right? If you're a business and you need to be able to hedge or um, you want to be able to get access to stability or anything of that nature, the next thing is going to an exchange. Right. You need to use FTX. You need to use, you know, BitMEX. You need to use some type of exchange that's going to allow you to do that. And as we know, some of those aren't even around anymore. And so for us, we wanted to build financial tools for Bitcoin that were as transparent and verifiable um, as Bitcoin itself, in essence. And so that's really why we've been building um, building Atomic, because we want it to be the one stop shop for anyone to be able to access uh, financial tools without having to give away custody you know, of their Bitcoin and being able to hold on to their own keys. And um, really our long-term vision for that is to allow for folks to do that in the easiest user experience as possible. So in order to do that, we use a, a type of contract that's called DLCs. And it basically allows for you know, any type of financial primitive, whether it's a futures contract, options contract, bets, it allows for all of these to be done right on the base layer of Bitcoin itself, um, which is very cool. Yeah, that is very cool. Uh, you mentioned the phrase, you know, being able to earn yield. And I think that's going to immediately raise some red flags for from some of the listeners here. And just like how it, you know, the idea of making a change to Bitcoin may have raised a lot of red flags in 2018, 2019. Um, talk to me about why this is something that Bitcoiners should be interested in or embracing, um, given some of the the fallout in the last year or two that you alluded to? Yeah, that's a great question. One, and I think the real consideration here is that all of the solutions that existed previously um, that allowed for you to earn yield, what they really involved was depositing your Bitcoin into a black box. And so for us, what we wanted to allow for folks to do is to do that in a transparent manner, where if you can deposit your Bitcoin into you know, a contract on top of, you know, on the Bitcoin chain, right, a, a DLC, um, that you can verify exactly where it's locked for the duration of the entire contract, and you know exactly um, you know what it's doing in the background, then that gives you a lot more transparency of exactly what's going on. So as an example, um, our current strategy, we, we offer a passive strategy that allows for people um, to be able to make a return um, using covered calls. Uh, so covered calls are a simple you know options premium or options primitive, that basically allows for, um, you know, the basic idea of it is you, if you sell a call, it's like you're selling, um, selling uh, uh, the ability for someone to, you know, buy your Bitcoin at a certain price, right? Um, so what this looks like is 
you know, say the price of Bitcoin today is $30,000. I might sell a call that expires this upcoming Friday uh, at a strike price of 33000 And if it goes above that, then, then obviously I might lose a portion of my Bitcoin. And if it stays below that, then I get the premium. But one of the really nice things of cover calls is that it doesn't matter. Like basically you either win in terms of Bitcoin terms or you win in dollar terms, right? And, and obviously we're trying to build this in a manner that's as, um, but using, you know, math and backtesting and statistics to basically allow for folks a way to be able to very easily, you know, just deposit and invest in these types of strategies to earn a return where they know exactly what the risks are. So we're not saying if anyone's promising you, like, let's be honest, Kevin, if anyone's promising you a free lunch in Bitcoin, it's probably not true. And you're probably going to get wrecked and you're probably going to get rugged. Um, and so what we try to be really clear on is, hey, what are the risks? What, you know, what is the worst case scenario that can occur here? And what are the risks that you're taking on when using a product like this? And I think that's, that's really the most important with any type of financial tool for Bitcoin is it needs to outline the risks very transparently. And in general, it, it almost always needs to be non-custodial. Otherwise, the chances of getting rugs are very high. And so when you think about worst case scenarios then on Atomic Finance, like what is that worst case? Is it something wrong in, in the way the DLC was written? Uh, what, what are some of the issues that, that could be could lead to a, you know, catastrophic or like a worst case situation for a, a user? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think first off the, the DLC itself. Um, so in, inside of that, obviously we're writing cover calls. So, you know, worst case scenario in terms of like, from a financial perspective, Bitcoin goes and, you know, skyrockets right after, you know, it enters into a cover call position. And then obviously you're going to lose a percentage of your stack. Um, so that's obviously the financial risk you're taking on. Um, obviously we've done a lot of backtesting, um, and we've used historical data going all the way back to 2012 to be able to determine, you know, when an uptrend or a downtrend is going to occur and then take positions based off that. So sometimes it's not a good time to trade, right? So we won't take a trade. Um, so that's the, that's the financial risk. Then there's the technical risk, right? So let's look at a DLC. Um, and in a DLC itself, what is a DLC? A DLC really on chain is really just a Bitcoin Oracle contract. And on chain, it actually just looks like a two of two multisig, right? So it actually looks very similar to a dual funded lightning channel on chain. So um, if you compare this to, you know, let's look at for a second, an Ethereum smart contract, right? Um, there's tons of hacks that can occur with something like that. The surface area of attack is very high. You've got admins that are controlling those contracts. With a DLC, it's just a two of two multisig. And so um, there's a lot of like, obviously, level of security that's involved with that. Now, something could go wrong with the DLC with the process of, you know, creating the signatures. So we do in the process of creating that, that DLC and creating all of the, um, you know, the potential outcomes, uh, we do like verify all the signatures all the way along to make sure that, you know, that's proper. But even if something goes wrong, the only one that can actually really steal your funds in a two of two multisig obviously is your counterparty if something goes wrong. Just like in the Lightning Channel, um, the worst that can happen is a state update is incorrect and your obviously your counterparty takes the fund. And so um, that obviously reduces uh, kind of the service area of attack significantly. And obviously for us, um, like we're working with, um, you know, a market maker with Atomic. And so they're on the other side. And obviously we have agreements in place with them that, you know, if anything technically goes wrong, they'll return the, you know, the funds to the users. And so, you know, uh, the service area of attack is obviously much smaller with the DLC for sure. Right. Okay. That's very helpful. Um, I want to, I want to talk more about the idea of yield itself and mm -hmm. the, and whether or not that is, uh, necessary or going to be a large component of Bitcoin kind of usage in the future. Uh, cause I think there's a big cohort of Bitcoiners listening and say that, that will say, why do I even care about one, two, three, four, five percent yield when I, the, the opportunity of Bitcoin succeeds is so much greater. We're talking like 10x or 100x. It's like it's almost like what's the point of you know trying to find an extra one or two percent here and there? Um, how important do you think yield will be for people to earn yield on their Bitcoin moving forward? Do you expect this to be a large portion of Bitcoiners or kind of a smaller subset? 
Yeah, I think that's it. Um, so I think in general, when it comes to yield or returns, um, there's lots of folks and, and we always preface this as well, which is, you know, don't, if you're going to invest in something that's offering you a certain level of return, you know, don't put your entire stack into it. You should be having 90% of your stack in full storage. But I think there's an opportunity here, which is that, um, you know, as we, as we transition over the next you know, couple of decades from, um, you know, a fiat standard into a Bitcoin standard, there's an opportunity to make some returns, you know, along the, along the way. Um, and so obviously there's folks out there that, you know, never want to trade in their whole life. And that's totally fine. You know, you should, you should have your, you know, funds in cold storage and, you know, you can keep it there. But there's some folks that are, are willing to, you know, take a bet and are willing to risk, you know, a small portion of their stack and, and to potentially earn um, a larger return. And I think that's, that's really what's interesting to folks is being able to uh, take advantage of that, that transition and be able to take advantage of making, you know, a small extra return on their Bitcoin. Um, yes, Bitcoin's going to, uh, you know, we expect Bitcoin in the long term to be the, you know, the world, you know, reserve currency and be the world reserve asset. And with that is going to come a large price appreciation. Um, but there's lots of folks that, you know, have gained a certain amount of Bitcoin over time and have, you know, they just want to put a portion of their stack. And that's why something like cover calls is really interesting because it doesn't matter if, uh, you know, what happens if Bitcoin goes above the strike price? Well, you've gained in dollar terms. Um, and if it, you know, goes uh, below, then you're gaining Bitcoin terms. And so this is really an interesting tool for folks that are like, hey, uh, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with where my stack is right now. I'm maybe even willing to sell a very small portion of it. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if that doesn't end up happening, I'm, I just want to make a return on it. And so that's why something like a cover call is, I think, really compelling. Mm. I see. Um, now, this kind of automated covered call strategy is is like it's one tool in a financial system. But if, if we look at the fiat financial system for a second, this kind of covered call automated strategy would just be like one of many different ways in which someone can earn yield. Now, in Bitcoin, you guys are pioneering this. And this is, you know, one of the it may be the only kind of self-custodial yield generating ideas I've heard. Uh, recently, maybe one other is, is selling liquidity on on Lightning or something like that. But um, do you expect to see that we have an entire suite of financial tools available on Bitcoin that kind of mirror the tools that we have in the fiat financial system? Yeah, I think in general, um, some of the tools will exist. I feel like there's a lot of different tools that exist in, in fiat world, right? You've got things that are related to dollars. And then you've also got other things that are related to stocks. And so I, I don't really see any reason for something like stocks, for example, to become non-custodial because it's, it's regulated by the state, right? So the state can take it away from you at any time anyway. It's like, um, you know, something, it's like having something like Tether. But I think in general, I think a lot of the, the things that we see in the traditional world, things like options contracts, things like futures contracts, I, you know, contracts for difference, I think we will see tools like that come to the non-custodial world, even things like loans. We've already seen Bitcoin-backed loans. Um, uh, companies like Unchained have a great Bitcoin-backed loans product. There's an alternative non-custodial version, which is done by Lava, uh, that exists for DLCs that allow for you to you know, do something similar. I know HODL HODL has a similar loans product. So some of these things are starting to come to fruition slowly in Bitcoin. Um, so I, I feel like the things that are related to Bitcoin and, and, and non-custodial will definitely, I think, transition over and we'll have a suite of tools that are related to that. Um, and then some of the other ones, I feel like it's like, why do you need a, that's the same question of why do you need a blockchain for that, right? It's just, you know, you just keep it in, in traditional world. It's not, it doesn't need to exist in Bitcoin. And then on the, on the topic of like returns, I think that one of the interesting areas, so you mentioned um, obviously being able to, um, uh, make returns on uh, what did you say? Uh, did you say join market or lightning liquidity? So you can you can sell channels oh. and and earn a yield on that. Oh yeah, light, lightning pool. Yeah, there's there's interesting ways with lightning to make like a return or join market um, or right. even like say if Arc comes along as a scaling solution like an ASP to be able to make like a return. And so I think we're going to have like various of, of these tools that allow for you to make a return on your Bitcoin in addition to trading. And I think the main difference there is that you're going to have certain returns or certain tools that are more based around liquidity, where if you have a significant amount of liquidity, you can make, a, you know, a kind of a risk 
risk-free rate in essence without lending um because never lend your bitcoin in an uncollateralized manner because you're gonna you're it's gonna you're gonna lose <laughs> um but there's gonna be like those tools that exist that are um that are really risk the risk-free rate and then you're gonna have the other tools that exist that are maybe more trading focused that um allows you to make a you know return that way so i feel like we're gonna have all these tools built out then and i and there's even more i think too which is um the ability to to hedge right for companies right um i talked to a company recently um here in canada then they were they were they were just hedging using an exchange right they're using futures on on bitmex to 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 hedge and of course bitmex got banned in canada and then they went and used ftx and they got wrecked just because they were trying to hedge um because they were um a company that does otc you know buying and selling of bitcoin so you know why isn't there a financial tool that's self custodial or non custodial for them to use so it, you know it's really up to us to to build out that that suite of financial tools that you know bitcoiners really need right so talk to me about the roadmap and kind of the vision looking forward for atomic finance you have this one tool this one strategy what is next are you building out a full suite yourself are you taking on you know additional ideas beyond this kind of like trading kind of financial strategy what what's next for atomic yeah, that's, uh, so right now we're uh, we're focused on the passive strategies. We're likely going to add some additional ones for people to earn returns in various type of options. Right now, it's cover calls. We think there's interesting opportunities to do things with long calls as well. So we're slowly going to build out that uh, that you know suite of tools, and then after that, we're likely looking at um, you know kind of different tools that are useful for, for folks for different use cases, whether it's stability or, or hedging. So we're likely going to look into uh, building some tools that allow for people to hedge against price downside or especially being able to, to maximize on the bull market. So why hold the, you know, if you're investing in Bitcoin, why hold it all the way down when it reaches its you know, uh, highest price point, um, for example? Um, another really interesting use case, I think, is stable sats. Um, so being able to uh, you know, convert your Bitcoin into a, uh, into a, uh, you know, a DLC and just have it follow the USD price, for example. Uh, so that's definitely something we want to do down the road. So immediately it's just passive strategies. And then right afterwards, hedging price downside and maybe stable stats after that is next on the roadmap. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Voltage. Voltage empowers engineers to integrate Bitcoin and Lightning Network payments into their business stack with an enterprise-grade experience. The team at Voltage is building the complete toolset so that you can do more than simply spin up nodes, but also understand and interpret your node's data. Their new product, Surge, gives engineers the capability to quickly solve problems and optimize operations. With node insights and visibility through time series data, you get dynamic and complex insights never available before. You can get complete control with insanely fast onboarding, advanced client-side encryption, and zero management infrastructure, making backups, networking, and upgrades simple. Get a free seven-day trial today at Voltage.cloud. In the current state of things, self-custody is something that is going to be relevant for money, but not for stocks and bonds and real estate and things like that. Do you think that that leads to a change in the mixture of, if you look at the fiat financial system, you say, what is the mix of dollars? stocks, bonds, real estate, in terms of like national wealth or global wealth, do you think that that tends that pushes money flowing into a hard asset like Bitcoin and away from something like a stock or a bond that that can be seized at the end of the day? I think it the the consideration of whether that occurs is very dependent on the trust that the individuals of that nation have um, in their government or in the governing body that is in charge of those assets. If we think about ourselves as Canadians before the whole trucker protest, right? You try to talk to your average Canadian about, about Bitcoin. Oh, I, I don't know about that. And what's the use case for it? Oh, well, well our banks are safe. We don't really need Bitcoin. Um, even the same thing with the average American, right? Oh, we don't really need Bitcoin. Our, our banks work. You go to someone in somewhere like El Salvador and, well, um, you know, 
they have a different perspective or somewhere some someone in Argentina or someone in Venezuela, they have a much different perspective on the level of trust that they have in the underlying institution. And so I, I think whether or not this this push occurs and whether there is a larger push towards self-custody and, and Bitcoin being interesting is based on the level of trust that the individuals of that country have in that asset over time. And so if we if we see a, an erosion of trust, as we I think we've seen over the past three years, there's been an erosion of trust with the Emergencies Act in Canada with, hey, actually, the Canadian government can freeze your bank account and they will um, or. Um, a loss of trust now in medical institutions around the whole, you know, COVID, COVID vaccines and the lockdowns and a lot of the misinformation that occurred. I think the more like basically the biggest I feel like the biggest risk to Bitcoin is governments acting properly. <laughs> um, like if, if your government is acting properly, then then I mean, there's no need for Bitcoin. But the chance what is the chances that that uh, governments do everything right for the next hundred years and, they, and none of none of the politicians mess up? zero right <laughs> so right um, it's a check and balance on their on their behavior um and i mean hopefully exactly. it does lead to better outcomes it's like it's the two the two can win at the same time right it's like bitcoin can succeed and governments can then react to bitcoin success and say listen if we want to get if we want to get some of these assets um re-monetized if we want to get money to flow out of bitcoin back into real estate and stocks and bonds we need to be we need to be acting in a way that you know, is more uh, responsible. Um, exactly. I'd like to talk a bit more about the uh, monetary premium of some of these other asset classes. Though people have have talked about how real estate has a monetary premium to it, and and Bitcoiners have predicted that as Bitcoin grows, uh, it will eat into that monetary premium, and it will be left with the kind of utility value of real estate, uh, and not necessarily this additional price that people are willing to pay because they view a, a home as an investment. Um, do you expect to see a flow of money from, let's say, stocks and bonds into something like Atomic if you are able to kind of like sustainably generate some yield using this covered call strategy? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I think first off on your point around um, real estate, I do agree that in general, if we look at... Um, if we look at a lot of assets today in a fiat economy, there's way too much emphasis on people trying to store their wealth or trying to retain their wealth instead of retaining it in the money. If you're retaining it in you know, Canadian dollars or US dollars, you're losing because you're losing to inflation. And so what do people do? They put it into real estate. They put it into stocks. They put it into bonds um, to try to escape that. Um, but I think there's a high potential here of uh, in the long term, if people choose to instead uh, escape into Bitcoin, right? If Bitcoin is the tool that allows them to escape, it allows them to be uh, in, you know, enter an inflation hedge, then there's going to be a larger and larger need for more financial tools for these Bitcoiners. And I think one of those things is, hey, uh, you know, a percentage of these folks are going to want to be able to make returns on their Bitcoin. Right. That's that's one that's one thing that they're going to be interested in doing. They're going to want to be able to get access to other financial tools like, hey, being able to hedge price downside since this is a more, you know, unstable in, asset, being able to get access to uh, um, something like stable sats where you can, you know, kind of switch in between the, the existing um, fiat system and the Bitcoin system, for example. And so um, I think it's likely that um, this entire ecosystem starts to really bloom and blossom as more and more people realize the the losing game that exists in the, the fiat economy as they move over to Bitcoin. So, um, and yeah. I, and I think the other thing too, is we're, we're finally going to probably see a, uh, an ecosystem for Bitcoin, like not a, well, we don't like to call it DeFi. We like to call it sound finance, but a sound finance ecosystem that starts to get built by Bitcoin. And we're trying to build this. There's lots of other folks trying to build this and, and these tools need to exist. Otherwise people are just going to keep getting rugged on centralized exchanges. So. Yeah, I saw that. I, I thought it was interesting that you guys brand yourselves. I believe you say that the phrase you use is sound finance for sound money uh, rather than the DeFi term. Can you speak to the differences between those? What are the kind of like foundational principles that you believe that maybe the DeFi ecosystem does not believe? Yeah, so I think that when you look at uh, DeFi, 
to a certain extent, it's generally been quite tainted. Um, you have a lot of, uh, you know, DeFi projects that are going, like, when you think of DeFi, what do you think of? You think of DGENs, you think of degenerates, you think of gambling, you think of tokens, right? And that's something that we didn't want to associate with at all. We're not here to print a token. We're not here to, um, uh, you know, to gamble. We're not here to, uh, uh, to create shit coins, right? We're here to build financial tool. We're here to build infrastructure that's going to be here for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so, um, and so when you look at Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin is sound money. Well, what do you build for sound money? Well, you need to build sound finance for sound money. You need to build financial tools that are sound for, you know, the, the best money that's ever been known to man ever. And so that's, that's, I don't know, we, we're, 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 we're trying to, trying to move things, move things away from, from, I guess, the DeFi de degeneracy and, and more towards something that I think Bitcoiners can get behind. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. I want to get into lightning and layer two. Um, right now, I, I believe there are no lightning integrations at Atomic Finance, but I want to understand what role might something like the lightning network play at Atomic Finance moving forward? Yeah. So I think lightning network, um, so we're not focused on it right now, but it's something that's we like for us is going to be really important um, as we scale. Um, so we right now we focus on DLC contracts that are all on chain, um, but it is possible to actually move DLCs onto Lightning. Now the folks in the Lightning community have talked a lot about you know how, what are the different ways that this would be possible. Um, uh, how can we do uh, DLCs on Lightning? One of those versions that was proposed was using something like PTLCs. Uh, um, your listeners might know. So HTLC is obviously the version that's used right now, hash time lock contracts that allows for payments to be routed over Lightning Network. The alternative to that is uh, PTLCs, which is point locked contracts, which is just an upgrade that improves on the privacy, but it also enables DLCs to be routed over Lightning Network, right? So imagine you have a um, payment channels between like Alice has a payment channel with Bob, who has a payment channel with Carol, who has a payment channel with Dave, and Alice wants to, create a DLC with Dave. Well, that's technically possible um, if you have PTLCs on the Lightning Network um, and you can actually create, create that DLC between them. But the problem is that Bob and Carol need to lock up their capital, right? So from a capital efficiency perspective, it doesn't make any sense. The alternative, um, which is actually possible today, um, is DLC channels, right? So you can actually um, have both parties you know, lock their funds into basically what's called the DLC channel and have them enter into DLCs off chain um, and simply have those, you know, settled on chain at a later date, similar to what you do with lightning. And then you can take it one step further and you can actually create um, what's called DLC virtual channels, um, which allows essentially for um, you to open up a channel that can be used for both DLCs and for lightning payments, which is really, really cool because you could essentially in the future have a lightning wallet that also um, has access to these uh, access has access to DLCs, which can do all these other type of financial primitives, like whether it's um, you know futures options, bets. So what's really cool about that is in the future you could actually have a lightning wallet that can do something like stable sats, where you can have a USD balance in your wallet and a Bitcoin balance, but in the background it's all settled using Bitcoin. Um, which is really, really cool. So that's something we're planning to integrate down the line. There's one company, 1010 One Finance, that has already been doing a lot of work in this, and they are already using Lightning's, uh, Lightning DLCs right now. And that's something we plan to integrate uh, probably early next year uh, that we're really excited about. Very cool. What, what are some of the uh, important, what are the reasons you're thinking about integrating this? Like what, what do you have in mind when you think, you know, we need Lightning because of X? Yeah, so one of the big things is obviously the, you know, uh, on-chain fees aren't going to stay low forever, and, and they weren't last month, <laughs> so that was fun. Um, the uh, ordinal spam attack uh, was obviously a, a fun stress test for us. And so, um, you know, for us, obviously, for, you know, for folks, it's really important to be able to save um, on on-chain fees wherever possible. And so using something like Lightning DLCs can allow for that to happen. So instead of them having to, you know, pay a significant amount of the returns that they're getting in on-chain fees, they can just save that and that can be settled, um, you know, within the channel. Um, the other thing as well, in order for us to scale long-term, um, you know, 
it's it's the same thing as same thing as um, you know on chain payments, right? Like not everyone can use Bitcoin on the base layer, right? Um, you know, if we scale to you know ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million DLCs being done every month, there's no way you know we're going to be able to do all of that on chain. And so there's an obvious need to be able to move this to a second layer where all of this can can actually be settled, you know, within DLC channels instead of us having to make those on-chain transactions. Um, and there's also another really cool thing um, that can be done with that um, because obviously, you know, there's a capital efficiency problem here, right? If a user is entering into, you know, one of these contracts um, and, you know, premiums are being paid, paid out, you know, their P&L is either positive or negative. And if their P&L is positive too many times in a row, obviously the, the channel balance, um, you know, uh, gets depleted, right? But there's actually a cool way that you can use um, something like Liquid to allow for, like, say if you use a Liquid and Lightning swap, then um, you can actually allow for the user to keep that channel open and they just get the rewards on something like Liquid. And so we could have a perpetual Lightning channel you know, for years without having to do an on-chain transaction, which is really, really cool. That is really interesting. Um, when you mentioned scaling atomic finance and, you know, potentially doing 10,000, 100,000, a million DLCs, is, is one DLC one user? How, how, what's the kind of footprint of a, of a user on atomic finance? Yeah, that's correct. Well, so one user, one DLC. Um, and so obviously if every user has to do an on-chain transaction, you can imagine you know, when if you need, say, if you need a million, if you have a million users, right, and they all need to do a transaction on chain, um, you know, with, within a short period of time, uh, that's insanity, right? You're, you're going to bloat the chain. You're going to be the spam attack, spam attack on Bitcoin. And so that's, that's just not feasible. We want, uh, we want something that's, you know, more sustainable for the long term. Right. Have you taken a look at HODL contracts by Super Testnet. I know I had him on the last week and he was talking about it and I just connected the dots here. I'm thinking, you know, exactly all the things he was talking about are, they seem perfectly in line with, with atomic finance and being able to enable all this functionality on lightning. Uh, have you taken a look at that? And what do you think? Yeah. First off, I love what Super Testnet has been, been uh, working on these days. He's always you know building cool projects. So really appreciate him. Um, HODL contracts are super cool because they allow for, um, say, like betting contracts or anything with binary outcomes to be done like really easily over Lightning Network. So like sports betting, um, I think it would be possible to maybe do a futures contract. Um, one of the things that's a little bit uh, so what's cool about them is obviously um, you have, you know, two parties, you know, Alice and Bob, and they want to enter into this contract. And then what they use for the Oracle is they use basically a um, the routing node to be the Oracle that um, decides whether, um, you know, upon expiry of the contract, whether, you know, which party is supposed to get the funds at the end of the day. Um, but obviously one of the challenges with that is that the maximum length um, can only be seven days for those contracts. So it's pretty easy to do something with sports betting for this, right? Say if you have a contract that, you know, the game ends in three days and you wanted to do sports betting and either party A wins or party B wins, then that's really easy to do. Um, but as soon as you get into like more complicated contracts that um, need to last, like say, a, like say you need a contract that lasts a month, right? Oh, and you also need to have a payout curve that is, um, that is more extensive, right? Like imagine, imagine a futures contract or an options contract, right? You need to have a payout curve of um, here are the possible premiums that they could gain, or here are the possible um, how, how in the money it could go and how much Bitcoin they could eventually lose. And you can have thousands of outcomes. Right. So imagine having to create all of those different invoices for all the possible outcomes. And then the um, the routing node needs to keep track of those in order to send them through. So um, I think it's really cool for those like those like um, simple use cases like sports betting. But for something more complicated, I think a DLC is is um, is, is definitely more suited. Fair enough. Um, what are the other Bitcoin scaling solutions that you're kind of either looking at or excited about? That, that could either complement Lightning or, you know, be a, be a different solution altogether? Yeah, I'm definitely looking a lot at um, ARC, obviously. So I think there's there's two right now that have been, a, you know, um, people have been talking about a lot, which is number one, like Fediment and number two, ARC. I'm not a huge fan of Fediment, obviously, because of the potential of fractional reserve occurring, um, um, where uh, obviously with uh, Fediment, it obviously allows for a, a kind of a guardian to uh, kind of take custody of your funds and they, um, they issue e-cash, 
Um, and with that eCash, obviously it's, it's, it's custodial at the end of the day with a certain level of privacy. Um, and so that's interesting, but not as interesting as something that is self-custodial. On the other hand, something like ARC, I think is really cool. Um, ARC basically allows for um, you to convert your UTXO into a, like a virtual UTXO um, where it can be kind of, um, uh, how do I explain it? Like you, you can basically like transfer it to different folks without needing an on-chain transaction and without needing inbound liquidity, like something like Lightning Network. But the problem with it is it requires a lot of upfront capital. If we wanted to, if we wanted everything for Bitcoin to be settled with something like ARC, uh, we would need three times Michael Saylor's capital, right? So that's a lot of capital to need to have locked up for, for them to, to route, um, you know, liquidity. And so, um, but I think, I think it's really useful. It's really interesting. I think the, the problem right now is it's very in its infancy stage. It's in the idea stage. So which improvements do we bring to Bitcoin that allows for that to happen? Um, CTV obviously enables ARC to happen. We thought that APO would enable ARC but it doesn't, um, uh, there was an error there. Um, we need APO plus another small improvement for that to happen. The other thing that's really interesting um, is CTV actually improves DLCs significantly. Um, right now, if you enter into a DLC, um, you need to create the signatures for all the possible outcomes that can happen, right? So with our DLCs, we have like 5,000 signatures that are created, right? It takes like a minute, minute or two to enter into a DLC. With CTV, you could actually enter, you know, instantly. It would take like two seconds or two or three seconds to enter a DLC, which would which would be really cool. And and if hardware wallets actually enabled support for them, we could actually um, CTV would allow for hardware wallets to actually um, sign, you know, DL, DLC contracts. So um, there's a lot of like interesting proposals. Like I'll bullish on CTV, but obviously we need to be very careful. So are these transactions right now in, in Atomic Finance's current state, are they going to be, are they more expensive than they would be if CTV was in place? Um, no, they're, no, they're not more expensive. Um, they're just, uh, they're okay. They're, they're not more expensive in terms of, um, Bitcoin fees, but they're more expensive computationally, <laughs> right? So, the, uh, so the, the phone has to take like one or two minutes to actually, you know, enter into the contract because it has to create all this, all these off-chain uh, signatures, basically. Um, right. So that's what it really improves. Yeah. So, so the big constraint for atomic finance is going to be the on-chain footprint. Is that correct? Or is there any other constraints that you see along the way as you imagine kind of maturing into a uh, globally accepted and adopted project? Well, I think there's a, there's in the short term, it's on-chain footprint, right? Move to lightning, but even, even lightning doesn't scale, right? Like um, there's not enough space on chain for every person to open a channel. And so, um, and, and there's also a capital efficiency consideration too. Um, if, you know, um, when you think of a typical exchange, right? Um, if I, if I enter into a, a particular contract, um, say I'm, say I'm shorting, um, and then, uh, uh, and then I into, into another contract that does the opposite of that, right. Then it, the exchange usually nets it so that like, I don't get unnecessarily liquidated, but with a DLC, each contract is individual and separate. And so if you're like a, a market maker, for example, it's more challenging because now you need to not only worry about, um, actually, you know, having the capital there, but you also need to worry about getting liquidated. And so I think there's a version of this long term. It's like, how can you build capital efficient sound finance? Um, and to do something like that, I think you need something more complicated than a DLC. Um, and that, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. Um, and so that's, that's like, but that's like maybe 10 or 20 years down the line, if you want something you know, to, to eventually build something like that. Um, yeah. I see. So for now, DLCs are fine for the current use case, assuming on-chain footprint doesn't get too large, but potentially down the line, there's, there's, uh, you're suggesting that you'd like to see some kind of improvements to Bitcoin. Not sure what those might be yet, but those improvements could enable a full suite of financial tools. Yeah, right? I think something like maybe um, maybe escrow contracts, for example, that um, escrow contracts allow for you to basically run instead of running like an Oracle uh, like you do in DLCs, you run basically um, 
it's kind of like running a VM or an arbiter, basically, that, um, you know, two parties can enter into one of these contracts, or you could, you know, enter it with multiple parties, and then you can kind of net uh, between them. So you could potentially have um, one of these arbiters that's running some type of VM that kind of acts like an exchange, right, where, uh, and maybe that arbiter isn't just one party, it's a federation, right? And so then you have like various, you know, um, orders that come in for whether it's a futures contract or, you know, uh, buying a futures contract or selling a futures contract or an options or uh, selling a call or buying a call, things of this nature. Um, and it can run in the background in a private manner. It can check, oh, you know, how much does each party have and are they at risk of liquidation? You can essentially run more of a, a liquidation engine uh, type implementation. Um, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done or even thought through to enable something like that. But I, I do think we need to have capital official, uh, capital efficient sound finance in the future. Um, but uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of work to get there. Yeah. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor, Stackwork. Stackwork is a lightning powered platform for generating high quality transcripts of all your audio or video content. They combine AI engines and hundreds of human workers all over the world who are paid over the Lightning Network to assemble these transcripts. And that's what lets Stackwork create better, faster, and less expensive transcripts. To see the results for yourself, you can check out my personal website where I host transcripts for all my podcast episodes. If you want to learn more about Stackwork, visit stackwork.com. That is S-T-A-K work.com. Have you learned any lessons about how to navigate proposing changes like this to Bitcoin? Because I know anytime a change is introduced or proposed, it's often met with a lot of pushback. That's probably a feature and not a bug. But you know, how do you how do you make progress if your idea relies on one of these changes? Any any kind of lessons you've learned along the way in the last few years? I think it's um I think it's a really hard problem, right? Uh, how do you, uh, this, this, is, uh, this is a question of governance, right? Uh, how, how do you do governance when there is no central authority, right? Governance is easy in Ethereum because you just, Vitalik says yes, or the Ethereum foundation says yes, and that becomes the new fork. Um, I think in general, what I've noticed in Bitcoin is that if you, with something like CTV, for example, if you try to really push it down people's throats, um, there will be a lot of pushback suddenly. Um, but I also feel to a certain extent you need to um, you need to get people interested enough in it uh, to, to, to actually you know get buy-in and so we seem to have been able to get enough you know uh, say buy-in on things like taproot even though a lot of the features were taken out before taproot was was released in order to make it so everybody was happy with it but are we going to see something like CTV in the next couple of years for example um, I don't know it depends on whether we get enough buy-in from the community um, and whether there's enough use cases for it. And I think one interesting thing that we've seen recently is that, um, you know, when an initial feature is, is, is released, um, like generally I think Bitcoiners look for a very specific thing that it solves, right? Um, we're introducing uh, SegWit because it solves transaction malleability. Um, it enables Lightning Network, right? It's solving specific problems. Um, Whereas uh, something like CTV, when it first came out, I don't think there was a very clear thing of, okay, what does this actually solve? What is this actually useful for? And I think what we've seen since then is a lot of proposals that are dependent on CTV now that now we can see, you know, maybe what the use case for CTV is. Um, a good example of this is uh, what James O'Byrne did with OpVault, right? Um, being built on top of OpCTV or ARC being built on top of CTV or uh, DLCs have, having specific um, use cases that are useful thanks to CTV, right? So, and I think as those, as those use cases get explored a bit more, the case for actually pushing that change forward becomes stronger. And so maybe it's just a combination of patience and time and eventually, and, and, and a feature being good enough in the first place that it, it enables that to come to fruition. But I think, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see whether, whether that, that will even happen. And so I think it's, it's a big unknown still. That's really interesting. Uh, and then just, do you have any general advice for Bitcoin builders who may be tuning into this that, you know, want to explore building new things on Bitcoin and maybe, you know, coming up against the same resistance that you guys might've felt a few years ago, 
where where people kind of like shun the idea of building on Bitcoin. What advice have you picked up in the last few years that you can share with with other builders? Yeah, I think it's just important to go out there and try things and experiment. And if you think that something doesn't exist that should should be built, go like go build it. Um, there's lots of you know, I wish I wish that when we started, there was as many tools out there, right? I think that's one of the challenges of building in Bitcoin is there's, um, you know, you need to build a lot more of the tools yourself. But um, I would say, like, if there's something exciting that, like, you don't see out there and you, you want to create it, just just go build it. Ask for help. Um, there's lots of other builders, I think, out there that are trying to, you know, create cool things. There's the discrete log contracts, uh, you know, Telegram group. I think... Um, there's the Bitcoin scripts like Telegram group where you know, everyone's excited about building things. So um, you'll find people out there that are, that are just like you for sure. Now, I'm not sure how many non-Bitcoin kind of like crypto listeners I have. I don't think there's too many, but for the maybe one or two who are listening here, um, can, you, can you share any uh, you know, advice or how, how would you approach the idea of convincing someone who is building outside of the Bitcoin ecosystem, maybe building on Ethereum or some other chain, how do you convince them to build on Bitcoin? I think um, the first thing I would say is read the Bitcoin standard, right? That was actually like a huge thing um, for myself and my co-founder, like really realizing why Bitcoin is so important. So even, like, even if, even if you um, think I'm full of it, read the Bitcoin standard and then you know, make the decision for yourself. Um, number two, I would say, just think about the infrastructure that you're building on and, um, and where you're building that infrastructure, uh, what, and think to yourself, what is going to be around in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Is it the ecosystem that you're building in now, or do you think there's another ecosystem that is even more stable that's going to be around for the long term? And I would think really hard about that. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, let's jump into the lightning round. I do this at the end of every show. Got a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned the Bitcoin standard, but are there any other books that have meaningfully changed your view of the world? Changed my view of the world? Um, I don't know if it changed the view of my world, but, but one thing that, um, I don't know, one book I really like, uh, it's called like Getting Things Done. Um, being able to org it's a book just on productivity and being able to organize your life. Um, it gives you like specific steps of like, you know, how, how to organize the tasks that you have every day. Like, you know, as I mean, you probably know as yourself, I'm someone working in Bitcoin, trying to, trying to build things, trying to, you know, think about things. There's a million things that come your way and you need to be able to organize all of them. So uh, getting things done was a book that was incredible for like improving my, my productivity and, you know, how I look at, you know, how I get up every day and figure out, you know, what are the most important things to do or work on today? Yeah. Interesting. Um, in a decade, how many Bitcoin will be locked into atomic finance DLCs? How many Bitcoin? Hmm. Ooh, that's a good question. Well, actually, uh, maybe if you can share today, how many, I'm not sure if you're able to share, but what, what's the, the scope of the project today? Yeah, we're just under, we just grew over the past like six months from like a couple Bitcoin locked to just under 40. So we're slowly growing. Um, ooh, can we get to... Can we uh, get to as many Bitcoin locked as Michael, Michael Saylor has at MicroStrategy? That would be cool. <laughs> okay, very cool. That's the goal. That's the goal. All right. If you could only hold one asset for the next decade and it could not be Bitcoin, what asset would it be? Oh, that's such a good question. I'm honestly torn between uh, like silver and gold. My dad's been in my ear talking about silver you know, a lot these days and how it's going to go up. But I, I think I'd still probably hold gold. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And then finally, who's one person in the Bitcoin or Lightning ecosystem that you'd like to give a shout out to for doing great work? Yeah, number one, uh, Super Testnet. He's been working on some really, you know, great, uh, great tools lately. And the other one is, um, I don't know, I don't even know if he's working on stuff recently, but uh, Nadav Cohen. Um, he used to work at Sherdbits, and they were working on DLC stuff. And um, I think they, I think they shut down the company recently. But he was so instrumental in me getting a really great understanding of what was possible for building financial tools on top of Bitcoin, a really great thinker um, and really pioneered a lot of the initial like specification work around DLCs. So yeah, huge shout, shout out to Nadav. Awesome. All right. Before you go, can you give listeners uh, 
tell listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Atomic Finance. Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, definitely check out our website, atomic.finance or on Twitter at atomic.finance. And also like, if you're interested in trying out the products, you can uh, click the download for, we're currently available for iOS, so you can download it and, and try it out. What we recommend to folks is absolutely don't put your entire stack in, try it out with you know 0.01 or 0.1% of your stack and just get familiar with DLCs, get familiar with financial tools for Bitcoin and uh, you know uh, try out new things. So yeah. Very cool. Thank you for taking the time to chat today and I uh, hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for the time, Kevin. Appreciate it. In the last 30 days, you guys sent in 28,857 sats, and that came in from 32 different supporters. Huge shout out to everyone who's been contributing. See lots of familiar usernames on Fountain and a few new ones as well. Let's go through the recent comments. In the last couple of days, Blockchain Boog sent 3,000 sats, gave a thumbs up, a clap emoji, and another thumbs up on stacking sats seven with Brianna Honkawa Destries on stacking sats on Noster. Snowman sent in 214 sats and said super interesting podcast on episode 113 with Super Testnet. Blockchain Boog also said Bitpack with a thumbs up emoji and sent in 5,000 sats on Super Testnet's episode. If you haven't listened to that one, definitely give it a listen. If you are a builder looking for interesting ideas, Super is a phenomenal inventor in the Bitcoin space and has lots of interesting ideas and projects he's been working on. That's all for this week. Can't wait to see what you guys send in.